Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. So this week, uh, our sermon, we're going to get back into, this is now week two of our sermon series on Psalm 51. Uh, hopefully you have noticed, whether in your email on Monday morning or Facebook or Instagram, there's a daily devotional that goes along with this that you can um, track with, that it kind of keep you rooted in this scripture as we go through the, the next uh, four weeks now. Uh, today is week two. Last week, we got t- context on what was happening. Second Samuel, we were looking at David's life and his his sin with Bathsheba, and then he has Uriah killed, and just not a great time in the life of David. And so this psalm, we said, tumbles out of that uh, life experience, that David is now uh, recovering or responding to that season of his life. So what we've seen is he's recognized the sin, and he's falling on the mercy of God, and we're going to pick up, we only have two verses to get through this week, but they're two pretty thick ones, so we're going to pick it up in verse 5. Read that with me. It says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time My mother conceived me. Yet you, God, desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Okay, so David, having confronted his wickedness and and confessed, he seems to encounter a new bit of self-revelation here. There's something deeply crooked in me, is what he's saying. There's something that before I ever took my first step or my first breath, there was something in me that was just crooked. My sin and my wickedness wasn't an outlier from who I am. It wasn't out of character. Derek Kidner, a a commentator and theologian, said it this way. He said, this crime David now sees is no freak event. It was in character, an extreme expression of the warped creature he had always been and of the faulty stock he sprang from. That seems like a harsh statement. But, but so often we think things are out of character. Kidner says, no, no, David's finally recognized this event, this, this Bathsheba and with Uriah, this whole thing was in character. This is tumbling out of who he was. It may be the most extreme expression of who he is, but it's still who he is. It's in character. This is in stark contrast to the PR speak we get these days. I don't know if you ever see a, a celebrity or an athlete get in trouble. This happens from time to time. Scandal emerges, a PR firm gets involved, lots of words get strung together. I mean, you play word soup, it's the same one every time. Eventually, somewhere in that, uh, it will say the words, this is not who I am. You ever hear that one? You know, okay. There's a golfer by the name of Matt Kuchar. Uh, He made $1.3 million winning a golf tournament in 2019. The golfer and their caddy have like a partnership. So there's kind of a minimum you pay, you don't make the cut, you don't do very well, you still give the caddy his due, it's five grand. But if you win, well then you kind of like, he's your partner in this, you kind of help out with that. You go, oh, well I, you know. It's like if you go to dinner and you get a chicken sandwich and it's $11 and you have to tip on that, you tip on that. But if you spend $100, you kind of got to tip on that. So Matt Kuchar wins this tournament, wins $1.3 million and somehow or another it comes out that he tipped his caddy five grand, which is the minimum. $1.3 million, five grand. That's, this is like getting your $100 meal at the restaurant. You go out for your anniversary, you have your $100 meal, and you leave a nickel. And you go, well, something though, that is the minimum. Didn't have a penny, so 
So what happens after this comes out about Matt Kuchar? He might be a nice guy. I don't know. Quickly becomes a PR nightmare. He issues a statement, and the PGA Tour communicates this via their Twitter. I highlighted the part at the bottom there. This is not, that is not who I am and not what I want to represent. The whole thing, all the words, blah, blah, I didn't do this, blah, 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 that happened, blah, I've always tried to strive, blah, blah, blah. He might be the nicest guy on earth. I don't know. Blah, blah, blah. This is not who I am. You know, and all I hear is, um, now we're going to date ourselves, but um, and Charlie Brown of the teacher, it's this is not who I am. I'm sure he's a fine fellow, but um, Matt Kuchar, that is exactly who you are. And I'm sure he made it right, and I'm sure he fixed it, and all that's true, so it's not about him. Um, that is who you are. Our actions reveal who we are. Our culture is one of justification and distance. Um, we are no different from the famous, so look, uh, I'm there too. We just don't catch heat for it publicly. But we attempt to separate the action from the actor, the action from the actor. Well, that's a thing, but that's not my thing. That's not who I am. It's just a thing that happened, which is a really strange tense, right? That's just a thing that happened. Well, how did it happen? Someone did it. Who's that? <laughs> not who I am. Um, so, like, it'd be like, we can say, well, okay, this is getting a little academic or a little, like, ethereal. I don't know how we really connect these things. It's like if you came and told me you were a great athlete. You were super fast. I'm looking at you right now. But you're like, no, I'm super fast. And I was like, all right, let's time you in the 40. Let's run a 40. See how you do. And three weeks later, you finish. <laughs> and we go, so maybe you're not the best athlete. Like, your actions reveal what's true about you. Your actions reveal the truth. The same is true with us internally. So we would say it this way, your sin is not out of character. It reveals your character. Your sin is not out of character. It reveals your character. It reveals the thing within you. My pride and my lust and my greed are not isolated events that are outside of my character. They are in character for me. So in the forest of life, like we're walking through, there are occasional clearances where we see these things. Hey, that looks like some pride. That's not a, it's not, it's not that it's like rare that it exists. It's just rare that we see it. It's rare that it bubbles to the surface, but it's always in there. I tell the story about how we were on safari and we spent this whole day looking for a leopard. We eventually found a leopard. There's a leopard. Ooh. But it took us all day to find the leopard and we were sure that we'd never see the leopard because the leopard is so rare and it doesn't want to get seen. And it's all these things about leopard, leopard, leopard. If we hadn't seen the leopard, did it mean the leopard wasn't there? No. The leopard was in Africa, whether I saw it or not. The same is true of what's in us. The sin that is in you is in you, whether or not other people see it or not, whether or not it bubbles out to the surface or not, it's still in you. It's there. And this is hard to hear. It's like some sort of shattered utopia. First Timothy, uh, Paul says this, he says, the saying is trustworthy and, and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. In the King James Version, uh, Paul, it's translated as, I am the chief sinner. Paul, who wrote a third of your New Testament, claims to be the best at sinning. The New Living Translation says, I'm the worst of them all. It doesn't say I was the worst of them all. He says, I am the worst of them all. I am the chief sinner. The flesh wars in us still. 
And darkness attempts to claw back what the light has won. Just because the light has won doesn't mean the darkness isn't trying to claw it back. Our hearts are not born clean, and there is ancient wisdom to support this. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a path before each person that seems right, but at the end it leads to death. This is just what Tiffany just said. There's a path that, that we think's right, and it leads to destruction. Self-deception is a universal skill, Jeremiah 17. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. So we have to assume that there's more in us than what we perceive or imagine. We have to remember that we are capable of great wickedness. Psalm 19.12, then how can I know all the sins even lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Even those of us who are aware that, man, there's something broken in me, there's some flesh worn in me, the darkness is clawing at me, even us in that moment need to be thinking about Psalm 19 saying, help me see the hidden sins. God, forgive me from even the things I don't even know are in there lurking, waiting, prowling. So we come back to Paul. He has this humility on display, kind of saying, I haven't become anything special. Jesus is the only beautiful and remarkable thing in my life. He's saying he's He's the chief of sinners. I'm still who I always was. The wickedness that was in me, it still has its way when we're not careful. David's in the same place. His eyes have been opened to his sinfulness. And he's learning, this is who I've always been. David's saying, this was in me from before I even entered the womb. This was always in me. This, this, this sin, this potential, this possibility was always in me. I would say that's a really precious place to be. To recognize that the thing crooked, the crooked thing in us has always been in us is an actual precious place to be. But see, like physical trials, recognition of our sinful heart humbles us and it drives us towards the only one that can heal us. So, I don't know if you guys heard this. I had a kidney stone not that long ago. <laughs> Just hydrating here, don't worry about it. It told me that's part of the problem. Um, too much caffeine, not enough hydration. Feels better. Kidney stones are brutal. Um, just by show of hands, this is really for us. We got a little club here. We started one. Just for those of us with a little pride swelling up right now, be like, I did that. Kidney stone people in the house? Kidney stones? Oh, yeah. Here, oh, come on. Let's go. All right. All right. We're all going out after this. Ken's buying lunch. Jim's got the drinks. Come on. <laughs> Hydration, guys. Kidney stones are a brutal experience. Brutal experience. Um, I once had a lung removed, and the pain from the kidney stone was worse. We talked to people who have birthed babies, mostly women. <laughs> Many of them reported kidney stone worse more debilitating, more unrelenting, waves of pain. We went to the ER. Morphine didn't touch it. You might as well have been putting Kool-Aid in there. Didn't matter. Not helpful. They gave me Dilaudid, which is the next thing that they give you right before they go to fentanyl. And Dilaudid gave me this cool chill for like 15 seconds when it went in the IV. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And Steph was like, yes, finally some relief from the pain. And then it sort of went away and my arm got hot again. And then it was just right back to death. It was the worst, absolute worst. So I called a friend who had had uh, this exact same profound medical trial in addition to some others. And I kind of confessed there was part of me that was sort of like, you know, there's this cool thing happening. 
where I'm not focused on any of the nonsense of life. It kind of does drive me back to Jesus in a way. And I, but I mean, how should I approach this kidney stone? Like, this is awful, but I mean, I feel like there's something happening. And my friend simply said, cherish this, which is not what you would expect someone to say about the worst physical pain of your life. Cherish this. That's what he said. He'd been through it multiple times, much worse than me. And he said the pain drove him towards God. And I found the same to be true. The pain drove me towards something that could heal me because I couldn't make it better. I didn't have any control. I was completely helpless. And so my friend says, cherish it because eventually this pain is going to fade. The stone will pass and the delusion of self-sufficiency will return. He was right. It's like the tide coming back in when the raw shoreline is exposed, but the tide comes and just sort of swallows it up. As your confidence grows again after a trial, it sort of just washes away the desperate need for God that showed up in that season. It all recedes under the waves of my own self-importance and my own control and my own desire to be my own God. Sin is no different. Sin pummels us and reminds us of our weakness. David is in this spot where he goes, I got nothing left. I got no way out of this. It can only be God. It sends us running. And since we're helpless to undo our own messes, it it desperately gives us this place where we're in need of something other than us to fix us. We established last week that everyone runs. Everyone runs somewhere. Most people run to things before we ever get to God. We run to other ideas. And then eventually we go, none of these satisfy, none of these fix, none of these heal. I guess I'll go to God. Every idol we run to is an attempt to invite an outside source to heal or break heal the break on the inside. Everything we run to is an outside source we're hoping is going to heal the broken thing in us. And these aren't bad things. These aren't wrong things. These aren't evil things. You guys ever heard of Taylor Swift? Some sort of recording artist the kids are into. Look, she's the most popular human being on earth at the moment, and she offers temporary transcendence for millions of people but the end result is emptiness. She can't heal me. Sunday, it's football season. Some of you are already thinking about football. You're not even listening to me. Did he say football? How did he know I was already thinking about football? Football offers an escape hatch into unity and a deep desire for victory, which is good. Victory over darkness, that's cool. It doesn't fulfill us. The game ends. Nothing's changed. Money, sex, status, they allow us to pretend to be moving towards healing and self-sufficiency. They allow us the delusion that we're making progress towards something, that I have all that I need, but in the end, they always let us down. They always let us down. Religion is maybe the most insidious of these idols. Religion is the one that we, we in the church are most likely to go, oh, we'll just be more religious. That'll help. Which is just saying, let's try to control the world with rules and rituals. Let's try to be real rule-oriented. And that'll control everything. That'll convince us and others that we have it together. Convince me right about certain things. If I have the right interpretation about a really kind of complex, nuanced bit of ancient wisdom, but if I have my perfect right interpretation that I know is right and no one else can be right, then at least I know I'm right. Which just shows how broken we are. Idols can't fix you, but they're tempting in times of trial. Here's the thing about trials. Trials don't change you, they reveal you. Trials don't change you, they reveal you. 
tell the story all the time to couples. Couples come in my office and we talk about a marriage being an old wooden bridge somewhere in Amish country. And the bridge has all the faults and flaws, but from a distance, it's just beautiful. And walking over it two people, it's beautiful. But you drive a semi-truck over it and all the creeks show up and the cracks start to show up and the thing shakes and there's sawdust falling out and a post falls. And pretty soon, uh, the bridge is in the river because it took too much weight. The trials in life don't change us, they reveal us. They simply show us what's true of us. When enough weight comes down on us, we respond with what is in us. And that's just true. And so in verse 5 and 6, we see David come to this full realization that he's been revealed. His true inner self, his true structure, his integrity has been shown to be what it really is. And as a result, he moves from this Um, deep sadness and desire for mercy to something else, he turns to hope. It's the crescendo of the song as he turns to hope because, you know what? I can't heal me. I am broken, but there's someone who can heal me. There is a way to wholeness. What the human heart has done, what God has desired, he's sinful at conception, and yet, he says, you designed faithfulness in the womb. You taught me wisdom in secret places. See, for David, this is a reset and an acknowledgement. It echoes the wisdom of Solomon in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 3, he's made everything beautiful in its time, God has. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. There's this sense that each of us, somewhere in us, knows that there is truth. Each of us, somewhere in us, knows that there is wisdom available, that there's some sort of larger thing happening. And God has hidden the hope of heaven in us so that when we are in trial, so that when we are in sin, so that we are feeling broken, there's something in us that cries out that goes, there is a path back to wholeness. I I felt it. I've seen it. I don't know where, but it's back there. God has already given us the path. We somehow know the ancient ways. And like hurting children, if we're we're in the right place of humility, like hurting children, we, we run to curl up with mom or dad. The question becomes how we find that humility. There seem to be only two paths, really. If you look at life and you zoom out just a little bit, there's two paths to finding humility. It's devotion or devastation. Most of us choose devastation, whether we mean to or not, where we'll find our way to humility through the devastation that comes with living life. But both will humble you. Both will make you feel vulnerable. Both will make you feel small. Devotion to, to give a like, well, what does that even mean? Is that doing my devotion every morning at 6 a.m. and five minutes and then I pray and then I start my day? Maybe. I'm not saying that's probably it. That sounds like religion to me. But it doesn't sound like a bad thing. It's only a bad thing if you're doing it without heart. Devotion, I would say, should feel like the first time you get a glimpse of the Grand Canyon where you go, whoa. The vastness of Alaska, the roar of Niagara Falls, that thing that you've seen, you just go, whew. When you find yourself in that position, you're experiencing devotion of the Lord. It doesn't mean you can't do that on your couch at 6 a.m. reading through your scripture and your devotionals. But is it cultivating that devotion? Is it leading you towards that whoa moment, that wow, God alone moment? What I think devotion does, when devotion is right, whether it's, whether it's a still small space in your home or it's out seeing the greatness of nature, what devotion does is it reminds you how small you are because devotion shows you how big God is. That's all it is. And so whatever it takes for you to feel small, go feel small. I, I tell everybody, everybody knows that. I go walk through Winter Garden all the time. 
It's not huge. It's not Alaska. There's no Niagara Falls. There's a swamp like four or five months a year. Not as pretty. A lot of mosquitoes. But I go there because the trees are hundreds of years old. Everything makes me feel small. I can see that life existed before me. It's going to exist after me that I'm small. And so I can walk through there for hours. I'm small. And I feel devotion in that place. Devotion and intimate time with the God of the universe will humble you. Lacking that, a loving God will allow us to stumble. If we don't go chase out that humility, if we don't go chase out that smallness, God will allow us to be humbled along the way. Devastation that sin brings will show up in our lives. It will create humility whether we like it or not, and we will all stumble through that from time to time. The question is really whether we learn to pursue humility through greater devotion or if we simply will return to self-seeking and repeat the cycle of devastation again. What David's attempting to do in this section of the scriptures is he's attempting to acknowledge that he's gotten himself into this and the only way out is God. And it's almost like you can hear this whisper, the in-between the lines of him saying, you know what, I don't want to go through this again and the only way to stay out of this is to stay with you, to remain small in front of you, Lord. So the question for us today is whether we're going to be people who will continue to fall into devastation and then say, but that's not who I am. That's not who I am. That's an outlier. That's out of character for me. That's not really who I am. And then we climb back on the horse of self-reliance and self-salvation. Ah, that's not who I am. I'm, I'm different than that. That doesn't represent me. And if we live in that world, we experience sin's devastation over on a loop. Or the other option for us in a day like today, the other option is we, we're changing of seasons and fall is arriving and the smells are changing and the wind is fresh and you kind of feel this freshness happening. The windows are open in your house again. You go, this is something. I feel alive again. The way to feel alive again with God, the way to translate that into your spiritual life is, is to recognize that we are broken. That we are, from the inside out, we are wicked and broken. It's in us. And sin reveals exactly who we are. And, and, and so many people would say that, and we don't want to hear that. We don't want to think that. We don't want to deny that. That can't be it. That makes me feel bad about myself. So we don't say, I'm sinful. We don't acknowledge our sinfulness so that we can self-flagellate and punish ourselves and, and feel real bad about who we are. That's not the point. It's not about tearing yourself down. It's so that you might seek the only one who builds you up. And we spend so much of our life in the delusion of distraction that we never get to the point of devastation where we recognize that we can't heal ourselves. We never get to the fetal position in the corner going, God, you got to fix this because I can't do it. But once you've been there, and so many of you in this room, I know your stories, so many have been there. then what we should be praying for is a remembrance of those days, a remembrance of that feeling, a remembrance of that season, a remembrance of that humility, the humiliation, the smallness that drove us back to the God of the universe. Because only in that remembrance do we have the chance to go through life, not in the vicious cycle of distraction and delusion, but in the virtuous cycle of running back to God at every turn, of seeking Him as the only one who can heal. So my prayer for us as we go through this week is that we would grow in love for Jesus, we would grow in reliance on his grace, and we would begin just maybe a little more this week than last. We would begin to understand that he's our only path to hope or healing or salvation. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, you have been good to us. You're gracious and generous to us. You allow us, even in our worst days. Uh, You don't waste those days. You use them to draw us back to you. Father, our prayer as a people is that you would grant us sweet remembrance, that we would know not only who you are and what you've done, but Lord, may we remember where we were when you entered into the story, where you invaded our lives and you showed us that there's a way to hope and healing. Father, my prayer uh, for those here who are still stuck in that vicious cycle of delusion and distraction. Lord, my prayer is that you would wake them up in devotion before they get to devastation. God, would you use the awe and wonder of the world you've created? Would you use the awe and wonder of your scripture and your revealed word? Would you use the awe and wonder of your son, Jesus, his sacrifice and his resurrection? Lord, would you use that to swell up joy in our hearts that we would feel small and see just how big and wonderful you are? Father, we long to be like Paul. We long to be like David. We long to be like Jesus. God, find us wholly devoted to you and nothing less. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.